the point of saying how are you going to pay for it is saying we shouldn't have that. Um, you know, the, when, when it's something <laughs> yeah. that when it's something that they want to happen or that they're you know ambivalent to but not actively hostile to, they're not going to bring up the how to pay the how to pay for it question. Welcome to Medicare for All Week. We're here today with two economists. Our first guest is Nathan Tankus. Hi. Nathan is the research director for the Modern Money Network and author of Notes on the Crises. And please welcome our second guest, Marshall Steinbaum. Hi. Nice to be back. Marshall is an assistant professor of economics at the University of Utah and a senior fellow in higher education finance at the Jane Family Institute. Thank you both for coming today. We're really excited to have you both back on the show. Yeah, I got to thank Nathan, actually. He's the one who told me about Death Panel in the first place. (laughs) Yeah, It actually was when uh, I told Marshall about Death Panel that I officially got granted my economist uh, status, uh, despite lack of credentials. (laughs) (laughs) You got your wings. Well, you know, we're we're all about myth making here on this show and and Bill. Building the grand illusion. So, but we've invited Nathan and Marshall here today to help us tackle part of the Medicare for All debate that has really taken on a life of its own to the point that I think we need to sit down today and set the record straight. And that's this, which is what is the one thing that people always say about Medicare for All? What is the one question that people always have? It's how do you pay for it? <laughs> um, oh. You hear this from. All sides of the political spectrum, really. Medicare for all, free health care. You know, it sounds awesome. It sounds like it would be really good. Maybe one day, you know, it just would be too damn expensive. And there are a lot of different answers to this question. Marshall, Nathan, how do you pay for it? <laughs> God, it sounds like we're back on stage in the Democratic presidential primary, bringing <laughs> back traumatic memories. Right. Well, I mean, the the real fact of the matter is, is that it's not actually a question that is really relevant. And that's kind of what we're going to get in today. On one hand, you know, people adamantly opposed to single payer have pay for arguments that they like to use, which they use as a reason to point to this policy as fiscally impossible. And Medicare for all advocates also have a set of arguments that they like to use, which we can get into. But ultimately, this isn't really representing a very accurate picture of what actually would be going on with Medicare for all. So like uh, this debate is, is, is very fascinating to me because since I was had become attentive to the issue of like healthcare at all. The, the pay for debate has just been like, uh, around and it's, it's always like striking to me because, you know, I, I teach like policy analysis and it's always like, you know, it's, it's always the, the stuff that I teach is like, it's always framed in terms of costs and benefits. Right. And the really funny thing to me is like this, the pay for debate just completely only talks about, uh, this pol- this really, really important policy that can like save lives in terms of a very narrow and like weird and baroque uh, attempt to understand like the the cost accounting of this thing, like why is this pay for debate like so? Why is this like the coin of the realm in like why do we have to worry about this so much? Is well, what I'm saying. 
because it's useful to the people who want to oppose Medicare for all. Like so far, <laughs> so far, they they say the word pay for and the outcome of saying that word is the outcome that they want from saying that word, which is that Medicare for all does not happen. So they will continue to read from that script as long as it is successful at bringing about the outcome that they seek. And I think our job here is to at least make that saying that, that speaking from that script not have the outcome that they wanted to have. Yeah, exactly. But the point of saying, how are you going to pay for it is saying we shouldn't have that. Um, you know, the, when, when, it's <laughs> yeah. that, the, the, when it's something that they want to happen or that they're, you know, ambivalent to, but not actively hostile to, they're not going to bring up the how to pay, how to pay for it question. You know, this is, you know, the more basic point that, you know, if you propose a big increase in military spending, no one's going to ask you how to pay for it. Um, and we actually, you know, there was some statistical work showing that actually for the 2020 Democratic primary, that that was the case. Um, but more fundamentally, it's just a, it's a question that is meant to end whatever policy you're talking about. Um, and it's meant to, you know, be oppositional to uh, big spending proposals. That's that's that it's that's its purpose. Its function is to invoke you're going to pay more taxes uh you and and you can't afford that you're already you know living month to month so they're going to you know upend your up on your finances or make it so that you can't afford to go to the movies or whatever <laughs> um and you know that's the purpose of the conversation fundamentally it's to it's to kill any 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 sort of proposal that that you want to propose yeah i mean my basic view of this is that uh, so one of the things that I think was a helpful addition to this somewhat tiresome debate uh, that occurred in the Democratic presidential primary is the idea that our existing health insurance premiums are themselves private taxes that more or less everyone is required to pay. Um, and the benefits that we get from paying those private taxes that affect to our employer for them to purchase a health insurance plan supposedly on our behalf, um, the benefits that we get are vastly unequally distributed. So if you think that everyone in the country or most people in the country are already foregoing a third of their paycheck to pay for health insurance, then the question of enacting Medicare for all is, a, is, in my view, a progressive restructuring of the American healthcare system such that uh, there's less of this, you know, does my employer's plan cover it? On what terms does my employer's plan cover it? But what doesn't get negotiated is the fact that a third of my paycheck is going to it. You know, that's a private tax. Um, and so if we enact an, a Medicare for all program that's financed with a progressive tax where there's no question about of eligibility or coverage, um, that just is a way of doing away with a uh, exploitative private system and replacing it with a much more egalitarian uh, public system. Yeah. And to jump off from there, I mean, what, what's, what's remarkable to me, um, Marshall mentions the, the interminable Democratic primary for 2020. And what's remarkable is how many hours and hours and hours were devoted to that debate that didn't really get into the real issues at all in terms of the financing or the economic side. Because, of course, you know, we had this long, long debate and then we immediately increased healthcare spending by quite a lot without any quote unquote pay wars and immediately entered a depression where it would have been nice to reorganize our healthcare system on a much smarter basis 
take the, the burden of those healthcare expenditures off of state and local governments who would necessarily skimp on them inadequately, um, causing, you know, death, but also acting counterproductively in terms of what's best at the social level, even, you know, at the macroeconomic level. And, and at the same time, um, at the same time as this argument was happening, we have this monetary policy debate, this debate over interest rates, mainstream commentators bemoaning how low interest rates were and how if only we could, you know, get demand up in the economy and thus, you know, have the the space, quote unquote, to lower interest rates and uh, stabilize the economy in the next recession. Um, and so, you know, in this context, you have this huge program, Medicare, uh, Medicare for All, which isn't really about accelerating healthcare expenditures. Um, it's right. about reallocating them. You know, and obviously we can get into this in terms of adequate healthcare justice spending, but like, you know, even a lot of the most generous proposals, you know, often, you know, just by nature of how our healthcare expenditures have been growing, we're talking about not accelerating the rate of growth of healthcare expenditures and even decelerating it over a longer term period. So really all the action is on, as, as Marshall says, that private tax side. Well, I, I want to talk about this in the context of like the doorstep conversation, okay? Because there's like there are a lot of moves that happen in this debate. Like, of course, we all realize that the the pay for question is grounded in bad faith. All right, we all mm-hmm. acknowledge yeah. that, right? But then the question is, how do you deal with that? Because you know we've been talking about spending right now in terms of like global uh, national health expenditure, right? But the way that the pay for canard gets used, and the way that it's too expensive gets used, is the figure that gets talked about as the like the primary thing is the additions to the this this technical device we've created called like the federal deficit. This like this like accounting fiction we've created called the deficit, and the trade off that gets invoked when people talk about you know how do you pay for it? It's not how do uh, how does somebody else remotely pay for it? The implication is that you you know person at the doorstep taxpayer will be paying more for something and presumably not really experiencing any benefit or or if anything, um, you know, uh, maybe even experiencing like more more headaches or the sort of like Harry and Mm -hmm. Louise, like fiction of the 90s, which I think at least that part of it has like maybe become a little bit less relevant because of the increasing salience of the hell of private uh, privatized insurance. But like the but I do think that the invocation of the pay for thing primes like almost like this sort of like taxpayer identity in people's heads and this zero sum kind of thinking and trade off. And I wonder how, you know, both of you are, are economists, but you also have the, the great, uh, you know, we, we have two members of the high priesthood here today. Um, but I wonder how you talk about that or you reframe that for a public audience, because both of you also happen to engage with public audiences pretty well. Yeah, I mean, my quick answer to that is that a lot of people don't realize that they're already paying a third of their salary towards their shitty health insurance. So, you know, what's your salary now? What's a third of that salary? That's how much you're already paying, and you have deductibles, and you have co-pays, and certain, you know, a great deal of health insurance actually is just off limits because it's out of your network. So that would all go away. And then I think secondarily to that, you can overtly make the claim that if we enact Medicare for all, then your 
salary will go up because you will get that extra 30% that's currently going to your health insurance. I mean, this was kind of, again, a contentious issue back in the primary because this question of who exactly pays for uh, health insurance and who is the incidence on uh, is a subtle one. And this the sort of ideological valence of that question differs depending on what uh, what policy question you're talking about. But I think in this context, there's, it's absolutely defensible to say, you know, yours, <laughs> if we enact Medicare for all, then you'll have uh, 1.3 times your current salary is what your salary will be. Um, I think one aspect of this that that you know a sort of past trauma that was relived by the uh, 2020 primary experience. I remember exactly where I was sitting when I listened to uh, Barack Obama's address to Congress uh, introducing the Affordable Care Act, so sort of kicking off the congressional debate on that. You know, I was sitting in my kitchen and when I was in graduate school in Chicago, listening to this on the radio, and like I think literally the second line of the speech or the second paragraph of the speech begins with, you know, for the vast majority of you who currently have private health insurance that you like, nothing is going to change. And that was clearly that that was clearly a, a, a attempt to head off the rhetoric of Harry and Louise, as you're talking about, that like this is going to kick people off their private health insurance and most people's private health. Most people, when polled on the question of do you like your insurance, say yes, because they accurately perceive that many people in this economy don't have insurance at all. And so the question that as they read it is do you want your insurance or do you want your employer to just kick you off? And they don't think, OK, well, if they kick me off, I'm going to get a 30 percent raise. So Obama comes out for out of the gate with nothing's going to change for you if you have private insurance that's a majority of at least working people um and then gives uh, you know a, another 50 minutes worth of a speech about his revolutionary new proposal and he just told you that you don't have anything to gain from his revolutionary new proposal so the the the, uh, the obvious implication is okay well someone's going to be paying for it you know this revolutionary new proposal that you've spent 50 minutes talking about how great it was you just said i wasn't going to get any benefit from it but i can bet that you're hiding the fact that I, i'm going to have to pay for it and somebody else is going to get the benefit so to my mind that it encapsulates the sort of political perversity of all of the debate over pay-fors and keeping your private insurance radically over-interpreting the polling that says people like it because they perceive that, you know, it's tied to their job and their job is precarious. And I think there's a whole other language by which we can discuss Medicare for all that explicitly denounces those things. So it says, you know, it, it, it brings them forward and then says explicitly, you know, you've been lied to. The reality is the following. You get a 30% raise and you probably won't have to pay for it because we're going to pay for it <laughs> using progressive taxes, uh, which uh, only, you know, which, which you won't have to pay because, you know, you're probably not earning that much money. Yeah. I mean, for, for me, the way I, I approach it is I like focusing on precisely on this income point. This, you know, this pro big program we're talking about has these many components. It has you know, shrinking, shrinking to nothing, this insurance industry, which is, you know, reduces income. We're talking about taking the administrators and the claims adjusters and all of them and saying, you know, this isn't a socially useful activity anymore. <laughs> um, and so, the, you know, that's one component. Then we have reallocating a lot of those spending towards actual healthcare delivery, deliver delivery of actual healthcare. But, but the main, you know, other adjustment side is that we have this elimination of your, of your private tax, this, you know, the health insurance, the co-pays, the deductibles, um, and so on. And, and reframing the question is as how much can we, can, can society quote unquote afford for your income to go up? 
So what we're really debating is not, you know, how much you're going to have to pay for all uh, for all this good stuff. Um, and, you know, this is going to make your life worse off and not improve your access to healthcare at all. What we're talking about is whether your income is going to, your disposable income is going to go up 30% or is it, can it only go up 15%? Because that's really what the debate, but, you know, the real macro debate, once you get rid of the network talking heads and such, when you push orthodox economists to really take the issue more seriously and connect it up to these arguments about monetary policy that have been going on for over a decade, the real debate is just, is, you know, it's, it's, it's in, in a certain, in a lot of ways, it's really the debate that we're having over stimulus checks and Biden's $1.9 trillion proposal and, you know, Larry Summers and, and so on and, and uh, Olivia Blanchard, um, them arguing, you know, we can't afford to spend all this money because we're going to overheat the economy. That's really the debate we're having, you, you know, or should be having over uh, over Medicare for all is how much can we afford your income to go up all at once. Um, and if we can't afford your income to go up that much, you know, it's only going to go up, say, 5% or 10% rather than 30% because we're going to replace some but not all of these private taxes with public taxes or, or whatever. But that's really what it's about. You know, flip this idea that either you're going to, as, as Marshall says about the Obamacare period, you're either going to get nothing or you're going to have to pay higher taxes for the nothing you're getting. Um, and make it about, you know, not only are we improving your healthcare delivery, but we're totally eliminating these private taxes. And you might have to pay some fraction of these, of these public taxes, or you might not have to pay anything at all. And that's really what, you know, I, I, something I tried to push in 2019 a little bit, um, pushing more now and sort of becoming a conversation this week is, is this idea that like spending a lot more than you need to get the economy back to full employment. Uh, is exactly what uh, orthodox economists should be pushing if they're really interested in, say, raising interest rates to get off the zero lower bound. And, you know, explain that a little more. That we have this, this this whole other side debate that, you know, we have the central bank, the Federal Reserve is the only one that's supposed to be responsible for generating full employment, but it can't because it can't lower interest rates anymore once it's around, once interest rates are around zero. Well, then, you know, the obvious solution to that, which, you know, it's too obvious for anyone to say is spend enough is for fiscal policy is for the government to spend enough money until the Federal Reserve actually has to start raising interest rates rather than lowering it because we're in a recession. And but these conversations never connect up. Um, and it's by keeping these conversations separate and preserving the cognitive dissonance that the conversation is kept is kept impoverished. And then we have this you know, this this uh, fear that you're going to have to actually pay more for this worse health care rather than, you know, we're actually talking about how much of a salary increase can we uh, can you afford to get? Yeah, I mean, I would say I, I would say that the like when I try to enunciate the, the the claim about current health insurance premiums being a private tax and and so enacting Medicare for all means that your income will go up by thirty percent. The whole purpose, the the reason to articulate that claim, aside from the fact that it it's a true statement about a counterfactual in the economy, is that that makes them saying the words "pay for" create an outcome that they don't want, which is that Medicare for all actually is good, not just because it is a good program, but also because 
talking about paying for it is talking about making people's incomes go up. Like as long as if, if we can change the conversation is to is to unpoison the pay for claim to make it something that Medicare for all proponents would want to talk about as much as possible. Well, I think there's this other component in play, too, which is that a lot of these framings where we say that that Medicare for all is too expensive to be feasible. It's also setting up this dichotomy between people who need health care and need resources allocated to them and the people who consider themselves to be the sort of hegemonic taxpayer, which is usually like a white, you know, full time employed homeowner of some kind. And I think this is part of this like larger uh you know, f- framing that that we see often within like the structures of a lot of different benefit systems, which is the sort of pitting of the needs of the quote unquote workforce against the the needy and the vulnerable and those in need of care. And I think ultimately, like the pay for argument is reflective of this resistance to renegotiating um, the value of health, because ultimately what Medicare for All does beyond just switching up the payers, Medicare for All also tries to reallocate resources according to need, not according to means. And I think a lot of the pay for argument actually boils down to um, this sort of weaponizing of the archetype of the taxpayer against the uh the person on the dole. Well, I think there's definitely some of that at play. Uh, my own assessment of sort of the intellectual history of this is that that kind of dichotomy where where the attempt of the rhetoric is essentially cream skim in the health care industry or in, in the health insurance market where you're trying to speak to the people who don't have many health care needs and saying, look, we will, you know, under our proposal, you'll pay less and you won't have to support those uh, you know, uh, downtrodden people who are very expensive. That's not your responsibility. I feel like that was a, a, both it, it like, I don't know. My, my feeling is that the politics of that is not as potent as the people who want to have a shitty healthcare system want it to be, because I think most people do in fact want, you know, very good health, health insurance that they just don't have to worry about. And the mechanisms for enacting a healthcare system that you where you do have to worry a lot about the details are the are, or I should say the mechanisms of enacting a healthcare system that has a lot of cream skimming in it involves a lot of details that people don't want. So like I think back to the politics of that Rand study from the 80s about mm. how we should move to HMOs um you know because people buy you know people with over generous health insurance uh, you know or, or hypochondriacs or whatever get too much care like that's really it's mythical I mean, hypochondriacs. Yeah. <laughs> you know that that I mean it's had a profound effect on the way health insurance works in this country but I you know I just think that it was really a profound misconception. And there's a, yeah. uh, I, I think there's like a strong political upside. I mean, I guess the way I, I hear what you're, what you're saying is like, you know, it's a problem to overcome the fact that some people just need a lot more care and a lot more expensive care than others. And we have to create a solidaristic, a more solidaristic politics around that. I, I don't perceive that as being that big of a problem, to be totally honest with you. I think most, I mean, yes, there's definitely asshole libertarians living in Silicon Valley who see the world that way. I don't think that that dichotomy of like the taxpayer versus the sponge um, really is all that motivating in healthcare politics. You know, all of that for ordains the opposition to Medicare for all is coming from quote unquote the people of one kind or another. And I just don't think that's the salient problem. Like what we're talking about is the rhetoric that elites use 
to yeah. try to prevent the political system from reflecting what it is that the people want and what would be in their interest. Well, I can tell you exactly one place where it does exist, and that is in, and I think that this is in part because actually of the predominance with which the pay for question becomes a conversation, uh, not only as a, as sort of an argument against Medicare for all, but it becomes part of the conversation in, for instance, even certain progressive circles. I, I think, you know, one of the reasons we're having this conversation in the first place, I think, is that one of, one of the most frustrating quote unquote progressive or left uh, counter arguments to the, to the pay for question, because it's so often framed as like, oh, well, the, oh, well, actually it would be cheaper. Right. And there, there's study after study after study, uh, that look at the, Economic foundations of Medicare for all, and they say, "Oh well, actually, you know, we 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 calculated these these line items, et cetera, and it's and it's uh, and it's cheaper." And while that may be effective in some sense, and that it can certainly be a, a very good, quick, you know, cudgel um, as as a rejoinder against uh, you know someone have someone bring that invective to you, right? At the end of the day, in certain circumstances, for for one, one thing that we do know is that there is so much care that is not given or administered or, or sought in the United States that would be sought, you know, if people were able to like actually go and see the fucking doctor. Um, and that fundamental reallocation of resources and that and that reattribution of resources to the people who do need it, but who, you know, have their lives shortened by not getting it often, um, as we've, you know, talked about in, in, other uh, things in this series and on our on our show quite a lot. There's there's that that is not accounted for, and also sometimes, as in the recent CBO report that came out, I think at the end of uh, 2020 or the beginning of this year, um, as in the recent CBO report on uh, how to finance five theoretical Medicare for all programs that the CBO decided to camp, come up with, the you can get the oh well it's actually well it's actually cheaper progressive headline or whatever on your on your like lefty news site, but then. When you actually look at it, the cheaper option that the, the cheaper options that the CBO put forward exclude things like long-term care, which are things that especially people who are excluded from the workforce need. Right. The the thing is that we know, for example, that you know it was it was a huge victory for the fact that like um, both the Jayapal and Sanders Medicare for all bills in 2019 um, included long-term care, and part of that was because there was argument and derision in, among like in, interprogressive like factions basically uh, as to whether long-term care which is a gigantic component of the healthcare system should be included you know this this is one of the reasons why i think it's so important to get past that pay for question because even when we look at oh how much is the national health expenditure right now when we think about how poorly resources are allocated in a situation where the administration of healthcare is is run by market competition, essentially, even the picture that we have in the United States of, of what uh, what is present there is is not accurate or adequate. Well, I, I agree with part of what you just said. I would disagree with the claim that the current administration of healthcare is run by market competition. You know, um, I edit this podcast, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I think I, but I think that gets to a larger issue that has tripped up the left that I hope we can make at least some progress towards resolving here, which is that the existing American healthcare system is a complete and fucking disaster. Um, and that arises both because we spend too little in the sense that, you know, many people don't have access to healthcare that they actually need and society would benefit and they would benefit from having access to. And 
also way too expensive because any piece of healthcare that anyone does have access to is way, way overpriced and, and, you know, a gazillion different people are skimming off the top. Nathan, I'd love to hear you. I'd love to hear your take on this as well. Yeah. So obviously from the point of view of someone coming from the modern money network, I think like a lot of issues, healthcare, I definitely do think that healthcare is infused with taxpayer money myth, um, discussions that I, I think, you know, my, my experience of the healthcare debate, you know, obviously it's it was most present during the Obama era because the Obama era was um, the biggest sort of like, you know, moochers versus taxpayers framing in that <laughs> we weren't radically reforming the healthcare system as a whole. We were just patching it up. Our main thing was subsidies. Um, so you, you were, you know, if, if, you, if you were above a certain income threshold, um, then nothing was changing for your for your healthcare needs. Um, but if you didn't have access through your healthcare through your employer um, and your income was low enough, you're going to get a big subsidy so that you can go on a private market exchange um, or or a state market exchange to buy healthcare. And that you know heightens the contradictions the most in terms of framing. You know we have this you know undeserving moocher group quote unquote versus the deserving taxpayer who 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 is going to have to shell out but i think i think that 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 first of all i think a lot of people are carrying that logic with them into the medicare for all conversation if you're watching yeah um if you're watching network television and you've been and you remember even vaguely the obama the obama era healthcare conversations then it's very easy to just bring that same mindset that you had from that era, which was the you know very heightened taxpayer money uh, identity um, and taxpayer money debate into this conversation, which superficially can feel the same. You know, it it, it took a while to really get to the healthcare premiums or private taxes, um, and we're talking about eliminating those level and 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 having you know bernie who's finally sort of sharpens the you know way of explaining the private taxes point so that in his framing and in his bill you'll still be paying significant public taxes but they'll be lower than the private taxes that you were paying i i and so you know i i, I agree with marshall that when you use the private taxes framing that can be somewhat disruptive to how that pay for conversation goes and you can peel off people who are otherwise turned into, you know, anti-healthcare reform people by their quote unquote pocketbook concerns. But, you know, my, at least my memory, my experience of that debate is that in the public conversation and the network television and cable news television conversations, you know, it, it was many, many, many months of, of, of interminable Medicare for all debates before we got to that point in the primary. And by that point, there were a lot of other things going, uh, going on. Um, so that, you know, that would, I would put as one piece of it, you know, of course the second piece, uh, of it is the pay for question. This question of, you know, fundamentally the question of fiscal policy is a question of macroeconomics, but, Macroeconomics was never really a part of of these conversations. Even the private taxes point only slow, certainly starts to get us a little bit to um, macroeconomics. It, you know, we we have these conversations which are just about you know this nice, as as uh, Phil said, 
cost accounting of where well, we've got we've got we want to make this uh this this book balance and we've got you know some taxes over here and we've got some public expenditures over here and we're going to make everything balance and it doesn't really have much to do with how we manage the macro economy or what the macro economy needs um and so you know from my point of view from myself and my colleagues at the modern money network part of where we feel you know it's powerful to shift the conversation about medicare for all is making it a macroeconomic conversation is asking questions about okay we're talking about eliminating these private taxes and spending the same amount similar amounts of money what is that going to do to the economy and are some of these outcomes desirable some of these outcomes undesirable what do we have to do to avoid these undesirable outcomes and once you get into that conversation then the pay for conversation shifts it doesn't become of this broke well we've got one $1 expenditure we need $1 tax revenue it becomes a question about um balancing the economy of how close we are to full employment of what actual social resources in the sense of labor, land, uh, machinery, and so on that we need to uh, move around to produce what we want to produce. And so it's, you know, it becomes this conversation about macroeconomics. And then when you have that conversation, well, we're in a very different world. And of course, you know, for the last year or so, we've been in a pandemic depression and, you know, employment has collapsed. So now we're in a very different conversation macroeconomically, but the the Medicare for all pay for debate stays the same because right. it's just this, you know, dollar of tax revenue versus dollar of spending rather than what we want to do to the economy. And when you look at it from what we want to do to the economy, things look very, very different. Right. I mean, one of the things that I, I like to push back when people say that it's about, you know, controlling costs and that, that Medicare for all is really an argument about making um, things more efficient. And usually that's coupled with like very correct points about, well, people can't see their PCP. We've got bad spending because people are forced to rely um, overly, overly rely on emergency care, et cetera. Um, it's really not it's it's Medicare for all is really not about that actually. Medicare for all is about changing systems of value and systems of of resource allocation yeah. for the reproduction of health because as it stands right now in the United States health is pretty uniquely coupled with employment in a way that is very different from a lot of other countries. And I think what you see in all these other ways that that health interacts with our, our systems of employment and our and our systems of like allocating resources, it's all about this like certification for work. Disability certification is a good example. When you're being certified as disabled, it is in one part a medical certification, but more so it's actually a certification as to whether or not you could be retrained for work. Um, and so we we basically gatekeep we gatekeep access to care uh, through participation in the workforce. And what I think the argument really needs to shift to is not necessarily how much it's going to cost total, but how much do we need to spend to allocate care to everyone who needs it? Because what we are ultimately doing is changing the way we choose to allocate access to health. Yeah, I mean, I profoundly agree with 
with that. And I think that's an important way of framing the uh, the discussion here, because, you know, we have basically made the political economy choice to link access to the health care system to either supplying market labor or totally. you know, running through the hoops. I mean, I suppose what you're referring to is this is is the idea of like getting certified as disabled, meaning that you don't have to supply market labor in order to get care. But that's a very high right. bar to clear um, in our fucked up system. And I well, and, and just really quickly to, to interject and to get on SSD. DI Medicare, yeah. uh, as opposed to SSI disability, you have to have previously logged a certain amount of work hours. Okay, mm-hmm. so it's like it's like it's like Social Security in the sense of like you accrue credit that enables exactly. you to then, to then become an official disabled person, and that gives you access <laughs> right. to Medicare as opposed to getting to the age of sixty-five and having accrued credit to become a person who's deserving of Medicare. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with that. So, so. I think you can make a fully straightforward case that says, look, this is a stupid system that lets your boss decide whether you're <laughs> you and your family are healthy or not. And, you know, you know, who here wants their boss deciding whether they and their family are healthy or not? No. OK, <laughs> here's our alternative to that. Medicare for all. Oh, how are you going to pay for it? Well, you know, in I. Uh, it, actually, we're going to pay for it by increasing your income by 30%. And insofar as if there's something that still needs to be paid for, you know, rich people will have higher taxes. That would be basically my way of boiling down this debate. I worry, though, that like tying it to like we're going to tax the rich in order to pay for your care can be an austerity trap because that means that there is this finite pool that we have to work with. And and I think my concern just from my like study of how disability policy has been implemented in the United States over the past like 100 years, you know, the the original systems of support for disabled people and for the needy poor in the United States were private charity organizations where you have wealthy people taking from their stores of money in order to take care of people who were in need of help. And as we as we've progressed to like our contemporary time, that has shifted, right? And but the conversation has remained very much on the left, this sort of like, we've got to implement wealth taxes in order to care for those in need. And I guess my my concern is that sometimes like the Medicare for all debate gets caught up in this like this uh, feedback loop where we're we're all just like reinforcing these sort of like charity models, which are things that I think ultimately, like as a movement, we all kind of want to get away from. And so, one thing that I feel like is is like I'd be interested to talk about is sort of how do we how do we take the narrative and move it as far away from this charity model of you know needing to tax not that we're going to let the rich off the hook, like but like needing to tax the rich in order to fund supporting people. Yeah, I I think that those things absolutely don't have to be linked. I mean, there's a fundamental difference between extracting money through the coercive power of the state from rich people in the form of progressive taxes than a charity would be. But nonetheless, they bear some similarity such that they could be denounced in the same terms, just like your, your and your family's health status should not be dependent on whether your boss likes you or not. It also shouldn't be dependent on whether some benevolent rich person likes you or not, or whether you subscribe or whether you um, comport with their definition of a deserving uh, recipient of care. So yes, I do think we need to depart from that. I think there's a whole, I'm, as you are, reluctant to discuss progressive taxation as a pay for for Medicare for all, because I think this progressive taxation is entirely independent of what it, the money that it raises being used for anything, just as the case for Medicare for all is entirely independent of the answer to the question of how are you going to pay for it? Totally. 
you made a good point earlier, Marshall, which and I think we should we should talk about this, which is that like, I mean, I whatever one thinks about polling data or the depth of public sentiment or mood for something like Medicare for all, I tend to be an optimist on this, right? I, I tend to think that, you know, when you, you boil it down to the sort of the bare bones of the policy, that this is a, a thing that has, you know, a, a, a latent, a huge latent base of support. The issue is the, the elite discussion around this, which has a way of, uh, of transcending, you know, through cable, through NPR, uh, into this mass, like, you know, uh, consciousness a little bit is this elite conversation about the, the sort of like the, the accounting, which is like, of course, why, you know, like I, I made the joke about having like two high priests on from the, the high priesthood. Um, and, and I think that the, like, the the thing that we're sort of dancing around, but I think that this conversation about um, uh, disability brings it up quite nicely, is that uh, these these questions about like valuation and accounting have actually displaced conversations about what we value and like uh, you know the the things that that matter and actually displace and and prohibit like a broader conversation about what our values are. It almost makes me long for the days where the, that they would just have to just say that Medicare was communism or that like social security <laughs> was communism. Like, I mean, of course people still do say that, but it's the, 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 the argument is now because, because like, you know, I guess they realize that like uh, middle-class like white people are like a little bit more like, uh, I guess like they have grown like a little bit more sophisticated or like at least the communism canard has like fallen off the radar. So they now have to like frame the, you know, opposition in terms of policy sophistication, right? Like I've definitely been on doors where people are like, oh yeah, but uh, you know, they had some sort of like the patina of sophistication was there, was there um, kind of like, you know, thing that they brought it back to. But like, I do wonder how in the, the broader conversation we shift from a talking about uh, this, these sort of accounting maneuvers to like what, what exactly it is that we value and how we, how we place a value on that. Yeah, I mean, the reason why they constantly go back to the pay-for debate is exactly as you're saying, because they don't want to have the conversation about what we value or what kind of society we want to live in, because they know they'll lose that. And I, I guess part of my uh, skepticism here is that, like, yes, I do think that we need to sharpen our, our knives in order to do better when Mariliasen next asks, how are you going to pay for it? Um, but she's not. She's going to ask something else. She's not going to have the debate that we want her to have if we have a good answer that you know makes her look bad when she asks the question, how are you going to pay for it? If we have that answer, she's just not going to ask that question again. She will ask another annoying question that also seeks to deploy the apparatus of policy sophistication against the liberatory uh, uh, policy agenda. Yeah. So um, I wanted to hop a little bit on the, the taxing the rich conversation because, you know, you know obviously, B, you know, you're, you're speaking my language um, <laughs> that I think, you know, definitely agree that the tax the rich conversation is an, is an improvement over uh, the charity model in the sense that it's not something that the wealthy can quote unquote make choices about uh, in the same way that they can in a charity structure. But I do think that we, we have difficulty in especially in what you're talking about in terms of what we value and uh, what we're, what we're trying to value as a society and what we're trying to reproduce and what we're trying, not trying to reproduce the tax, the rich or the progressive tax answer, you know, attached to 
the eliminating private taxes answer, you know, can can have the trouble that that you're talking about in the sense that we have to get what we need to deliver people health care from people uh, up the income chain or the wealthy and or the wealthy to deliver these these needs rather than we need to re- reallocate our resources, our collective resources in the sense that, you know, the the labor time, the uh, the lands, the the machinery, you know, our, our collective resources to producing the outcomes, healthy healthy and healthier people uh, that we want in the world. And so for me, focusing on, you know, making this from this dry cost accounting conversation to a, ma- a macroeconomic conversation to a question about we have this collective uh, pool of resources that we can devote to what we want to devote things to. And we have these tools, the money power, taxation, you know, this whole, this whole fiscal infrastructure to, that can be mobilized to, to pursue these activities. Um, to me, uh, I think is a, can be a useful uh, reframing in terms of where we want to go and, fully break us from this this conversation and this reliance uh, on the rich, although there still is, you know, of course, there's diffi- there still is difficulties in terms of, like, you know, workerism of, you know, once you're moving it to resources, well, there still is the question, you know, are there these, quote-unquote, productive uh, workers who are helping these these other people who, who need needs and, and conceiving of this sort of, like, break-off of, unproductive people. So, you know, I don't want to say that any framing that we pursue, you know, from whatever point of view is able to fully break from the deeply held, ableist uh, visions that that are embedded in our, in our society. But I do think that kind of framing can break us some, which isn't also to say that, you know, the progressive tax answer can't be useful in certain circumstances, because, you know, the biggest problem, of course, is just concision, uh, is just you know, we have so little time getting our message out to specific people, and the other side has, you know, hundreds of hours of propaganda that they pump out all the time um, <laughs> to, ever, to, yeah. to everyone. So, you know, regardless of you know, what your answer is, the biggest problem is just the inequity of the time you get to explicate your answer. Right, which is why I think so often here on on Death Panel we say, you know, it doesn't matter what Medicare for all costs. What matters is actually thinking about how we can use economic policy to change people's lives. And I think that's something that that you two both like think about really well, which is it's, you know, it's a losing game to engage with justifying certain things on this cost basis because we know, as we've been saying over and over, this is a bad faith false framing. Because it tries to take something which is about sort of dealing with and addressing structural inequity, and it tries to reframe it as something that can be somehow um, negotiated through the process of cost-benefit analysis. And ultimately speaking, what I think is important is to try and, as a group of people who are all advocating for a better life for everyone to be actively sort of refusing to engage in these reductive, repetitive conversations and saying, you know what, what is important instead is talking about how can we use economic policy to 
change people's lives? How can we move away from these framings that we know are inherently embedded in like eugenicist frameworks, right? And and how do we try and preemptively not just respond in a defensive way, but like move forward and away from this idea that that economic policy has to um, somehow be justified by the uh, you know, holy blessing of the CBO. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing that's fascinating here is like, and, and listeners like will detect there are different views about the way the economy works and the way that uh, public institutions relate to the economy in this conversation, which is great. Right. I think the thing that's fascinating to me is that neither of these perspectives is really represented at all in the institutions we now allow to be gatekeepers of economic policy, right? If you think about the things that like the, 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 just the basic transaction costs, like what it takes to get like a, a bill over in one chamber of Congress. I mean, we have given, you know, it's not just like the, the, you know, uh, economists who died long ago, but, but living economists who, who, uh, pray to those people, uh, a, a huge, way of of just like defining and delimiting the pieces of legislation that we uh, consider. And, you know, I wonder how either of you think about the way that we get out from under that, that rock, because I think like one thing that just hasn't been, I think, talked about a lot is there are other changes that we need to be pushing for that aren't just about Medicare for all, but also about the institutions within government that make it so damn hard to like consider this policy on its own terms and in the terms that really make sense to the way that most people think about how it would benefit their lives. Yeah, I mean, that's completely right. The CBO is just one specific example of that is constructed on a false pretense that the that a policy can alternative can be evaluated in terms of its effect on the budget and nothing else. So like, the, the, I mean, in, in this case, the uh, sub-institutional history of the CBO is in order given its its sort of outsized role in uh, gatekeeping public debates about things that we care about. You know, that was enacted by Congress in response to Richard Nixon's attempt to basically thwart the budget that uh, Congress had actually passed. Congress realized that they needed their own sort of policy uh, or, or at least their capability of evaluating uh uh, budget policy independent of the president's office of management and budget. And so they created the CBO and they happened to have created it at sort of the height of, uh, I, I don't know if I would say the height of neoliberalism, but certainly while neoliberalism was on the ascent and while ne- the influence of neoclassical economics on public policy was in the ascent. And so the way that that, you know, is all kind of public agencies or policies bear to some degree the imprint of the circum- the political circumstances of their birth, like the Big Bang has, a, you know, it, it's, it's uh, uh, radiation can be felt throughout the universe forever, um, given its circumstances, like that, because that austerian ideology has uh, infected that organization throughout its history. So we're now in a place where they write a whole thing about evaluating different alternatives for Medicare for all as though informing Congress on that matter. And it's all through the lens of what is the effect on the federal budget when that's like the least relevant policy question that Congress should consider when debating whether to enact uh, Medicare for all. I mean, I also deal with them. In fact, I've I have done work for them to some degree on uh, student debt related matters um, and uh, income driven repayment. And like, you know, they're just as capable. I mean, in some in some ways, they're they're better at uh, uh, evaluating policy 
uh, alternatives than many of the think tanks that are in that business, in part because they have access, they have both access to uh, data that is generally not available on the outside, and also because they actually do have, you know, pretty uh, decent policy wonks on staff, like they can do that, but then they contort it into like, okay, well, what's the effect of the income-driven repayment program on the federal budget situation? Like, I mean, I don't want to get sidetracked into student debt, but like, there's basically no way of robustly analyzing that question. And yet the only way that the CBO can really like deliver a verdict about these things to Congress is in those, is in that form. So fundamentally, it's just not going to serve the end that we care about. And, you know, this whole conversation is about, pay for is for Medicare for all. Like so long as the CBO is a gatekeeper to congressional action on Medicare for all, it's only ever going to be talking about pay for because that's the thing that the agency exists to do. Yeah, I sort of wonder, I mean, but both of you are in this world where you're interacting with people who are members of a profession who do have, you know, this, I mean, let's admit it, like a really outsized role. I mean, think about compare you've just compared to other professions, public health. Right. In a pandemic, like it it very much seems like I have heard more economists mm-hmm. and health economists <laughs> and 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 public health people who are basically hangers on in the economics field, you know, not not to malign <laughs> your field by any means. But like, you know, then then I have heard from people who understand the, you know, the business end of uh, public health uh, logistics and infrastructure. Yeah, I mean, like, like that, I mean, I just say like, that, that, you know, that's a profoundly unjust. It's a correct uh, assessment of the state of public debate. And it's a profoundly unjust one. But like the reason why it is, is because the people who you're hearing say the things that people in power want to hear and public health people by and large don't. And so they get silenced. Like that's, I don't know how to, uh, interpret what's going on in anything other than those terms. I mean, just I, one thing I wanted to bring up in this conversation, because I think it's quite telling is that there's recently, uh, a paper about, um, basically passed through of Medicare reimbursements to physician salaries uh, written by some economist, one guy at the census and and some outsiders. In fact, there may be more than one at the census, but I know the one who's at the census um, and some other uh, economists on the outside. And what they find in in that paper is basically like you increase the reimbursement rate for something by a dollar and the most senior highest paid specialist who's involved in providing that medical treatment gets a raise of 50 or more cents. So, you know, that's more than 50% of marginal spending on uh, uh, healthcare treatments that the federal government undertakes passes through to the salaries of the highest paid doctors. Okay, that's a very interesting finding. They could only have done that with um, you know, tax return data from extremely highly paid, uh, you know, identifiable specialists that in, you know, it's very uh, granular in the sense of going, you know, very medical specialty by medical specialty and looking at the effects on uh, salaries of people in those highly specialized fields, they spend like an inordinate amount of time in that data, as well as the public framing of that paper, basically saying, but this does not mean we that Medicare for all would reduce spending. And the way, I mean, they, you know, have a bunch of uh, uh, ways of of trying to prove that, which I don't think are successful at proving that, but like you can tell that what's going on there is like perfectly reasonable data analysis using data no one else has access to to answer a very important policy question that of, of much public import. But because it's being done by economists, the, the the gloss on it is, okay, let's do all this other totally unnecessary stuff that has nothing to do with the actual finding of the paper to rule out the obvious implication that the real paper rules in. 
So that is the result of a field that is fundamentally a handmaiden of power. Yeah, I mean, I think precisely on that point, I mean, I think a big under-discussed element of that is simply that we need a ton more public funding for these kind of activities. I mean, you know, Congress doesn't actually fund itself very much. And when Congress doesn't fund itself very much and when there aren't, you know, an array of institutions that purely subsist on public funding in doing their in doing their research and being like anointed to do specific policy uh, analysis what you get is congress relying on a bevy of think tanks you know even and even just like straight up lobbyist work because they don't have anything else you know i remember many years ago i visited uh, congress on an unrelated trip actually when i was uh, involved in occupy the, the sec and one of the things i attended was um, this staffer uh, event that Maxine Waters was putting on in in the context of Dodd Frank um, and the implementation of Dodd Frank, and the event was just a kind of basic like one hundred and one. What what are derivatives? And they had someone from Cato. They had someone. They had Simon Johnson, and I think they had like a couple other people. Um, but they 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 were holding this event just super basic. You know what? What is derivatives for staffers? You know, in other words, the people. You know, the people who do the bread and butter work on the on these issues, and you know that's the kind of thing that happens all the time because that those are the only people who have any sort of expertise at all. You know, Occupy the SEC notably did actually have a significant amount of influence in its day, precisely because it was just you know half a dozen people got together to write comment letters and to make themselves dot the I's cross the T's experts on the, the very granular details in the, in those areas. Um, but it's really, you know, that's, that's very hard work to, to do sort of bootstrapping on your own. Um, and it's a ton of work to kind of put yourself in the administrative agency conversation by continuously writing comment letters and such. Um, and it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's just something that needs to be massively resourced. You know, there won't be any sort of real transformation of these institutions until we have, say, like $20 billion devoted to that kind of research funding where some portion of it goes to independent left-wing research that is, is completely independent of the current nexus of Yeah, I mean, it's 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 I think one of the just like the big public point of this is that like people are telling you that uh, we can't afford this or that this is, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, how are you? They're asking the question, are you going to pay for it? But the. They have a sort of, I don't want to use the, the, the term monopoly, but like, who are they? I mean, the, like one question to present is like, who are these people? Do you trust them? <laughs> what, what are their interests? Right. It, I remember going to an event at, you know, um, uh, like the, the the National Press Club. And there was like these uh, models of the cost of long term care, like in the future. And, and like, and they were like, we've been very transparent about our assumptions. And like, you go in and look at their assumption. It's like, yeah, I'm glad you've been transparent because these are all insane. Um, but like, but, but somebody <laughs> said, somebody said it, it to me at that event, you know, the problem with this is like, there are only three or four people uh, working on this particular, like, version of this this like modeling and they're using a, a computer program that was like written in the 60s and there's only like four or five people that can like really review these papers that come out and it's just like as a you know as a layperson like sitting there thinking about this is like why should i trust the people who are telling me that this is this is unaffordable like this it's 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 bizarre to me 
Right. And and I think so often in in the conversation around how do we allocate such a precious resource like healthcare, the way that expertise is used can be super harmful because as we've seen, you know, throughout the pandemic, but also throughout like the multi-decade long fight for single payer, you know, early on in the movement, you have uh, expertise organizations like the AMA pushing to um, undermine the fight for single payer. You have them hiring, you know, really expensive Washington PR people to put together astroturfed grassroots campaigns. You have doctors putting up signs in their offices, writing letters to patients. You know, there there has for a long time been gatekeeping around healthcare where we constantly tell people, you know, your experience of healthcare is it doesn't matter. Your own expertise, your own lived experience navigating the system or being cut out by the system or, you know, maybe not worrying about the system, that that doesn't matter. What matters is what people um, who are ordained experts have to say about how it works. And I think there's this constant sort of paternalistic push from the media portrayal of how, how healthcare works in the U.S., where we try to sort of break up constituencies and disempower people from speaking about their own experiences and disrupt movements like ACT UP, you know, who are trying to call public attention to the defunding of public health infrastructure, for example. And and it's all sort of part of what I think is important to try and actually mimic and replicate, but from our own perspectives. Well, I think there's an optimistic interpretation of what you're just describing, which is that all of that effort has not been successful at convincing the public that their interest is not in seeing comprehensive health care. Um, you know, it has been successful at making it the case that we don't have those things in the United States. But I, but I think that one optimistic takeaway is just that, you know, they've tried throwing the book for decades of, you know, policy motivated policy analysis and nonsense economics at it and they have not succeeded like they want to bury this forever and it's not going to in fact it's getting more and more uh widespread and and uh, with greater support so i think the issue is really just at the elite level i guess i don't have the sense that like the public is you know radically misinformed and you know we need to come up with a way of informing them i don't think it's that the public's misinformed i think it's more that uh there are like very complex systems and structures of power in this country where people feel like you know i don't think it's like a indictment of anyone needing to be educated or that anyone's against us. I think it's important for people to develop more complex theories of power and and more complex understandings of what their own expertise actually brings to the table and what, what we can demand because what we have the right to demand and what is literally and economically feasible to do in this country in terms of refiguring how we're going to allocate resources. I think it's about trying to push people to expand their political imagination and push the will to act into a completely different realm than what we've been working with for the past 40 years. Yeah, I don't think it's about people being against us per se. I don't think I don't think the point of the pay for debate is really to turn, I mean, obviously to certain extent to turn people against us in the sense that like, like if you had a Medicare for all bill and, you know, it was, you know, there was going to be a vote that day, they would call their congressman to tell them not to vote for it. Um, it's more making them feel like it's irrelevant because it's not going to happen. Yes, and yes, yes, exactly. exactly. It's, un, it's unrealistic so that it's like, so for example, I mean, I think, you know, I think this is where the kind of like people support Medicare for all 
polling can get a little tripped up because I think, mm-hmm. you know, if you look at the Democratic primary, you have majorities of people who support, you know, Medicare for all, maybe a job guarantee, maybe other things. Um, um, but those people still voting for Biden in that primary or one of the other candidates, but, right. and, 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 and not, and not Bernie. And, you know, obviously there's an element of that of just, there is just actually that base level of this is unrealistic. So you shouldn't, you know, yeah. you shouldn't even dare think about it because it is, un- because it is unrealistic. Yeah. It's one way of bleeding off the, the moral sort of like, you know, intensity of the demand. Well, that's one of the reasons that we wanted to have this conversation in the first place, because again, we're not, we're not talking about other people. We're talking about like what, like the, that public sentiment, which is that even we hear a lot love, love that you guys are so idealistic, et cetera, <laughs> what, whatever, whatever sort of, you know, condescending platitude they want to trot out <laughs> at any given moment. Um, but then it's like, you know, I, I think especially, you know, for, for a, a lot of people, um, you know, you'll, you'll talk to them and you'll counter it and they'll be like, you know, uh, love, love the idea in theory, of course. And I think this is, you know, this is part of the way that the, I think the entire, I think the majority of the democratic party really operates in terms of being able to frame it's like eighties Republican policies or whatever, (laughs) as, uh, as some, some sort of shield defender of freedom and democracy bullshit or whatever. But, um, they say, you know, like love it, agree with you in theory. However, I know the thing that you don't, which is that it's it's so expensive and you know the or or one example one one really high level example is like oh um which is i think the inverse of the the thing that you guys referenced which is the inverse of the um you know oh, maybe your paycheck would go up because all the money like because the employer won't be spending money on on healthcare or whatever the inverse of that argument from a lot of those people will be well you, you don't you know like they would put the only public uh, understanding of how you would pay for it is like either this progressive tax or by putting this uh, like this god awful like uh, employer tax uh, a proposal that like Warren put out or whatever <laughs> um, in, in 2016 like that, that that would be that. And that would actually depress the labor market somehow um, by m- making it prohibitively expensive, you know, like expensive to uh, to, to hire, hire new employees yeah. or whatever, you know. Well, I think in this, the, I think actually the role that that pe- that pessimism and the sort of like nihilistic doom of like nothing will fundamentally change yeah, nihilism. Yeah, like what I, I I understand why it's easy to feel that way because it absolutely sucks to experience using healthcare in this country. You are made to feel worthless, even if you have fantastic insurance. And it just reminds me so much of a very early interview we actually had on this show, which was with uh, scholar Jamila Michener, who Jamila's work, she looks at Medicaid and the disparities from state to state in Medicaid. And her one of her books is fantastic because it just really talks about how the experience of government, how how generous you perceive your uh your survival aid to be really influences how people feel about being part of society or a community or, you know, a sovereignty, right? And the more that people are made to feel like shit when trying to seek access to their care, the more we create room for stuff like predatory wellness industry and what if Paltrow goop vaginal eggs and all these sort of leech products that just are like all 
oriented these these markets that are oriented around um, dealing with the alienation you experience from accessing care, right? And I just feel like so often, like I think about Jamila's work and I think about this process that she describes of like when you interact with things that are dysfunctional, like it makes you feel disenfranchised. It makes you feel worthless, unwanted, and it makes you feel like your opinion isn't considered. And I think part of what is really important is to be, you know, empowering people to be like, yeah, you're what you think about Medicare for all matters more than what a poll says, you know. Totally agree. Uh, <laughs> you know, you're beating your head up against that at this uh, very moment. I mean, and, th- and this is why I think the taxpayer myths, I think, is an important angle to to really hit. Because it's it's not so much that, like, I think any given policy proposal someone is going to oppose on that basis, but I do think it, it builds in this feeling of insecurity on the part of people who feel like they are barely getting by themselves, that, you know, proposals to use our fiscal infrastructure, use use fiscal policy to benefit people are a threat to them. Um, I think, you know, it, it, it's not so much that like, oh, this myths abound, and then people are necessarily going to oppose any individual proposal, but it creates this broader sense of insecurity that big changes are um, so, something that's very scary and something to be very careful about. And, and it's, it, it's that you know, general sense of insecurity, uh, of, of, of fear, of paranoia that makes generating movement around changing things in big ways so difficult. And, and something I worry about with, with the pandemic is that that feeling has only been hardened. That, 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 that on one hand, the pandemic is this huge example of how Medicare for All went obviously, you know, improve things on a number of different axes, but yet at the same exact time, change is, you know, is now even, you know, more dangerous. You feel more precarious than ever. Your, your life, your, 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 your home life, your childcare situation has all been so radically upended that, all you're looking for at the end of this pandemic is for actually things to get completely back to normal and pursuing another set of changes um, is almost like going back to the bad times. And, you know, yes. I think it's so either <laughs> way. I think, I think it's possible, you know, we, we, this can just, you know, totally sweep things in that get people to think about things the other way and think about you know, how much, more effectively this system would have worked with the Medicare for all system. But I think it's, I think that is a, uh, uh, an inertia, a, a direction that is in flux right now. And we could really go uh, either one of those two ways over the next like six months or a year um, <laughs> to be, to put us, to put a touch of optimism in, uh, I will say <laughs> as much as I think that the weight of the economics profession um, is is now being you know redeployed in these you know uh, quasi empiricist uh, ways? I do think that now, relative to times past, it's easier to blunt the influence of these kinds of things because 
these arguments get deconstructed in real time and get pushed back uh, upon yeah. uh, much more rapidly now. And, you know, you know, the economists can put out what, whatever they want, but it's really just staffers. And then, of course, you know, some upper level economic advisors for, say, the Biden administration who are arguing these things out. And arguments that we make deconstructing, showing how bad X or Y paper uh, is in the argument they're making do end up, I think, end up in these economic policy uh, conversations within within Congress, at least, if not the White House, um, and do have you know ability to blunt the influence of the of these toxic studies in the way that they wouldn't have in say two thousand eight or two thousand six. But but I but I I, I want to like no, notate something that both of you I think are are, are getting at, which I, I I think is important because like you know I'm not an economist like in this realm I'm a lay person and when I hear economics it can feel like something that just exists to dominate me in some way just one other thing <laughs> just one yeah. other form yeah, yeah, of, of expertise that's to dominate correct, me yes. and but I think this is something that's so important for people to understand because all all forms of expertise work like this at one point or another they are yeah. they're tools they're created as tools experts. Are, are deployed as tools, right? And sometimes uh, there is the the tasks to which we delegate uh, uh, these to, to, to experts have to return because of a great moral need to society because we no longer accept the valuations that the experts we've delegated to come up with. Like we now have a like moral need to displace uh, these forms of authority and that, and that's I think the the realm that we're in so like I don't I don't you know this is not me being an optimist necessarily right and it's not me also saying like pessimistically like I'm I'm quite aware that uh, you know th- that it's very very difficult to displace the the sort of uh, the court and the courtliness of some of these uh, courtly philosophers right but at the same time that illustrates to me that part of the project here is not merely like getting, um, you know, the public kind of riled up behind like one particular policy idea, but getting people uh, into the habit of saying, no, uh, it doesn't matter what you've said, uh, you know, Emily Oster, I don't actually feel comfortable and I think it is unsafe because of my knowledge of my craft to be in a classroom. I don't care what uh, knowledge you've come up with in the episteme. Like this is not the case. I, you do not value the things that I value in the same way. And my uh, will trumps yours. Like that is the, I, I don't see another way out of this. Yeah. I mean, you're just saying that, you know, these people can't be allowed to dominate and influence and control the public debate as much as they currently do. And I completely agree with that, but that's a matter of contesting political power. Yeah. And I think that's right. I, that's exactly I mean, right. There's obviously a, a sort of information ecosystem propaganda element to that, but that's fundamentally what we're talking about. No, I mean, but I think, I think that that, you know, the, one of the themes in, in this Medicare for all week is, is going beyond the, uh, the the sort of the narrow confines of this debate to think about the broader yeah. social structures that you know absolutely have to change and the forms of contestation that have to happen and i think you're you're right marshall which is that like we cannot be naive necessarily about uh how these things work and and both of you know this because of the worlds that you've been been situated in but it also like helps to highlight what forms of contestation are are like ha- have to 
go on alongside uh, the specific movement for, for Medicare for all, such as it is. Well, yeah, I think breaking Medicare for all out of like it's it's more reductive, simple framings, as we've been talking about this whole time. You know, the financing side of Medicare for all is so much more than just, uh, you know, like eliminating copays and out of pocket costs. It's also about, you know, um financially redistributing resources to hospitals, changing the priorities that hospitals have by changing their funding, you know, and and I think that the that there are ways to create policies um, where there are fundamental changes to institutions. And I think like conversations like the ones that we are having in Medicare for All Week are important because it, it does help empower people to understand and discern for themselves, you know, is this policy just reformism or is this policy facing so much opposition because it is fundamentally challenging systems of power? And I think ultimately what you see um, both in COVID and and in the debate over health justice is the weaponization of the sort of professions that describe and account for value in our society against any policy that could potentially be um, disruptive to existing institutions of power. Yeah, that's right. That's why the economists aren't going to be going anywhere anytime soon because they continue to yeah. fulfill that function. They continue to usefully uh, re-weaponize or recast whatever is the prevailing empirical or any methodology in the field in, in terms of serving that end. That's how we all have, or not all of us, but uh, you know why, why? How we have so many people with so such high prestige, comfortable positions is because they're doing what powerful people want them to do, and they've you know continued to do that and figured out how to do it in different environments and in response to changing circumstances. Nationalize the American Economic Association. <laughs> I'm just going to go ahead and say that again. I mean, foreclose on, well, foreclose, foreclose, I don't know, foreclose. I don't know. Abolish. I think abolish. I think it is yeah. abolish. 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 Yeah. Unfortunately, abolishing the association isn't going to do that much. Uh, I mean, hopefully it'll get rid of the fact that they're pretending to operate a sexual uh, assault and discrimination policy and a professional code of conduct that they're not actually enforcing and actually worsening the professional climate in the field by virtue of <laughs> espousing a policy they're not enforcing. But, uh, you know, that associate, I mean, the association began life as an organ of progressivism within the economics profession and was very quickly corralled into the role of uh, releasing the parameters of what's ideologically acceptable to espouse as a professional economist. So like, I don't know. There's no there's no one institution that is the source of no. I was joking. All of the uh, <laughs> all, all well, of the grievances that we feel. Well, I mean, I I think we can easily uh, develop a RICO case which ties the American <laughs> all the top economics departments, um, um, and you know, create a sort of single uh, single entity uh, theory. I like this. So we've had fun here today. Maybe maybe something that we could end on uh, is especially because I know we have uh, you know speaking of CBO reports we have at some point in the in the near future we have been promised from the CBO uh, a study uh, that I'm sure that the death panel will be discussing at length um, that will discuss the sort of macroeconomic effects of a Medicare for all proposal. And while uh, for all the reasons that we've discussed before, we have no reason to think that that will necessarily, you know, be, be a particularly insightful, uh, you know, addition to the debate as it were, <laughs> 
It does make me think that before the CBO has a chance to weigh in, I am curious uh, if you, perhaps both of you, um, could give us just sort of as a as a parting take your best take on what the impact of switching to a uh, single payer system where we have you know no private health financing actors where we have we've you know removed the role of the private insurer which is a financial institution that we you know venerate and hold up and have all sorts of policies around uh in the united states what what the effects of that would be uh economically sure uh i mean i one thing I didn't mention uh, in this conversation, but was one of the first things I wrote about last year, is that Medicare for All is a great policy for changing how our budget responds to recessions. You know what economists call counter-cyclical. You know that, that you know the idea that you know when there's a boom, spending is up in the private sector, and when the, there's a bust, spending is down. We want you know government spending to move the opposite way. But the problem is that we have, you know, because of our private healthcare system, when people lose their jobs, they lose access to their uh, health health insurance if their job had employer provided health insurance. Um, losing access to their healthcare also means, you know, expenditures on their healthcare go away, um, and also all sorts of you know, federal tax subsidies for that healthcare go away, and at the same time. You have all sorts of state and local financing of healthcare in certain way, in certain ways that lead to uh, impacts on state and local budgets, which they may respond with with just budget cuts or changing their, you know, reducing their Medicaid spending, as uh, Cuomo was was proposing to do right as uh, the pandemic recession was getting going. Um, and so, in in this structure, one of the things that happened when you go to a fully federally financed system is that you're is that you're removing all these sort of pro cyclical elements from our uh, our public financing system of healthcare um making meaning you know s- uh spending is going to go up more in recessions and less in boom so you know medicare for all makes our budget more counter cyclical um and at the same time you know it gets rid of the co-pays, the deductibles, uh, the premiums, um, which, you know, as Marshall was talking about, got popularized by a couple economists on inequality last year, are these kind of private taxes um, that get imposed. And so Medicare for All just gets rid of those private taxes. Um, and so then the question from there is just, can the economy absorb all that additional uh, purchasing power that, uh, will be unleashed by eliminating those private taxes, and if it ha- <laughs> uh, and if it can't imp- implement public taxes that take back some portion of the of that huge boost uh, in income, but the big picture being that we have this budget that is more countercyclical that responds to the needs of the economy more, um, and at the same time uh, we have um, these these capricious private taxes that get eliminated and um, the question just becomes how much uh, does uh, does our fiscal infrastructure need to reabsorb to keep the economy uh, balanced in that initial transitional period. But, but of course, you know, this is just a transitional period. It's a period from one period where people's disposable income is at one level and then it jumps up suddenly. But that only happens once. You only have that jump up 
level once, and now we have this new fiscal system, fiscal infrastructure that is much more responsive to your health needs and also much more responsive to uh, the state of the economy. All right. Well, Nathan gave his answer about macroeconomics, which is what he's does. Uh, I'm going to give my answer about labor economics and specifically the border of labor and uh, competition, which is what I do. Um, so I think the effect of Medicare for all would be to radically increase people's uh, earnings and wages. And that's a great thing to do after 40 years of wage stagnation. So, you know, Nathan mentioned the copays and deductibles that are eliminated by um, Medicare for all. I think the more salient aspect of Medicare for all as a private tax is not just that, but also the, pre- the health insurance premiums that employers are paying. We had the discussion about, you know, that's 30% of uh, most people's salaries. So you could just imagine your salary going up by 30%. I would say more, even more fundamentally than that enormous raise is the shift in bargaining power in the labor market towards workers as a result of making them not depend on their employer for um, access to the entire health healthcare system. And I think that fact would, that shift in bargaining power would mean not mm-hmm. only that we can trust or we can believe that there would be that pass-through of existing premiums to workers' salaries um, when, you know, under existing power relations in the labor market, if you, say, reduce the taxes that uh, employers have to pay on their workers, you wouldn't necessarily trust that workers would get a raise as a result because employers would just pocket the difference. I think one of the fundamental reasons why our labor market is so imbalanced as to who has power is exactly because workers are so dependent on their bosses, so make them less dependent, so there would be a more worker-friendly labor mar- labor market dynamics that would not just cause ju- not just mean that the thirty percent of salaries that's currently going to premiums would would instead go to uh, workers themselves, but also that more generally workers would be in a position to claim uh, 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 the difference between the value of what they produce and what they actually get paid. Yeah, and I think I'll add also too from from the perspective and to the perspective of someone who is uh, surplus labor, I <laughs> I think um, it's it's important to also underline that the the severing of employment and health coverage is fundamentally transformative because it removes a lot of the barriers which are currently um, locking a bunch of people into. Um, programs where they are policed, surveilled, and forced to live in, you know, abject poverty, like, um, you know, when you're forced to uh, do a Medicaid spend down to keep your assets under $2,000 just to qualify for long-term care, taking long-term care and making it accessible to everyone, taking health care and making it accessible to everyone. This is like a huge step towards taking down some of these infrastructures of valuation that we've been talking about, where it's sort of like the disabled person with healthcare needs exists as this, um, you know, uh, warning to workers as to what to avoid, right? Which is you've got to keep your job, otherwise you'll be out of luck, disabled and dependent on the state. Disrupting that that binary is, I think, fundamentally important. Yeah, and I think to add to that, um, to you know, that point about the the surplus population as regards, you know, as separate from um, from the labor force, for example, you eliminate a lot of the situation that you know I think a lot of people have experienced, and I've definitely heard from like B has gone through this, and I know that like a lot of uh, a lot of people who uh, listen to this show have too, where you know you per- perhaps the 
the welfare programs that the state uh, currently has, the social welfare programs that the the, the American state currently runs, do not uh, you're you're not technically you know satisfactory of those conditions exactly uh, to you know to to qualify for them. Um, simultaneously, you perhaps have have to work a a job to continue to get your medication to like to continue to get health insurance through your employer to continue to get your medication uh or treatment whatever kind of uh treatment that is um and then in the process of doing that like in so doing and continuing to have to you know work like a a full-time job for example even if if you're pretty much just working that full-time job in order to keep that health insurance either making yourself sicker or making it so that you have to, you know, ration the amount of times that you can like get checked up or checked out, you know, mm-hmm. um, some people, some, some people, the, for, for some people, they will have to go to the doctor much more frequently than let's say, uh, like an employer allows for paid sick days. Yeah. I like to call this the sick person. So sick, they must work for the healthcare, despite the fact they are too sick to work paradox. <laughs> yeah a mouthful we need to solve for that <laughs> yeah um phil any any final comments or anyone have no, any I'm final good. this is great thank you both so much for coming today um where can people find you if they want to follow your work uh maybe we'll do uh, nathan first um i write a newsletter called notes on the crises just finally got back on the horse writing again you can subscribe at nathantankis.substack.com dash subscribe 50% off for uh, the month of February. So uh, say hi or subscribe or read the free pieces, whatever you want, but you can find me there. And of course on Twitter at, at, at Nathan Tankus. Yeah. So Nathan's one of the few people who got to Substack for not being thrown out of whatever fighting <laughs> for too racist. Yeah. Um, so he's actually you know, part of good Substack. Uh, I, I am at, uh, at econ underscore Marshall on Twitter. I have a website called marshallsteinbaum.org uh, that has my academic work on it in case anybody happens to be interested in that. Um, and I teach in the economics department at the university of Utah. So in the event that you've been moved to uh, study economics as a result of this somewhat disheartening conversation, you're always welcome to buy and in my department and yes. uh, get a degree in the subject that is the source of all of our problems. You know, you know, <laughs> University of Utah is um, uh, 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 economics department is very famously a department that was uh, that modern or close to modern incarnation began uh, when a bunch of Mormons looked around and the only people that they could get to move to uh, uh, Utah to teach economics were people who are blacklisted because of uh, McCarthy. Um, oh my god! So for for many years was 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 a haven for uh, Marxist and alternative heterodox uh, economics uh, on that basis. And uh, Marshall is currently uh, on the last bastion of defending the department from a <laughs> yeah. love it. Um, listeners, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Medicare for All Week. As always, Medicare for All now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. This has been Medicare for All Week from the Death Panel. Medicare for All Week is an annual series presenting brand new interviews with activists, researchers, and others on building power toward Medicare for All, why we need it, and how to win it. 
This series was made possible by the support of our incredible patrons, and the series, as well as our show as a whole, would not be the same without the support of the community in the Death Panel Discord server. Until next time, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever, stay alive another week.